This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Engda Abebe Hagos. Uh, he has a PhD. He's an associate professor of biology at Colgate University. Um, we're going to talk about uh, various topics in cell biology, molecular biology, and perhaps mitochondria. So, Engda, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Richard. I really appreciate it. Yeah, um, your backstory looks very interesting. Would you mind telling people how you got to the university and how you got into this field? Yeah, so I am originally from Ethiopia, so I came here as an immigrant, as I was actually a refugee in, in Kenya for a year before I came here. And I didn't have much background in biology, but I was very fascinated by the field. So I did my undergrad uh, at the University of Illinois in cell and structural biology. And then moving on, I did my master in molecular biology in Northeastern Illinois, and mm-hmm. then did my PhD in University of Georgia. So actually, I did not study cancer uh, during my PhD. My PhD was focused on development biology, on understanding how the embryo set up in early development basically how a single cell uh, give rise to uh, an organism. That's um, amazing, yeah. Yeah, and then I move on to uh, did my uh, postdoc. So I was extremely uh, amazed by embryo and early on, you know, the question of development, the question of differentiation, how that one cell actually can give rise to many different types of cells, um, uh, how uh, does the other body produce another body? You know, reproduction is very fascinating. And how do the cells communicate to give you this or organs which are specifically located? Our eyes are always located on on our head, not anywhere mm-hmm. else. So then... Yeah, actually, I, I have a quick question about that. Over all time, let's say 100 billion people have ever lived and... Why is it that almost all of them have two eyes and not three? Why are they in the same spot? You know, why is our liver located usually in the same spot in opposition to other organs? Like, where do you think that information resides in cells so that they know not only to create an organism, but the patterning of it? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I think what we think happening in early embryo is the egg is extremely important for many reasons. One is all the organelles are actually uh, coming from the egg and nutrition, 
but also there are a lot of materials could be deposited from the mother into the egg that could be specifically determined. Uh, for instance, if you, I, I study in zebrafish and in early on, some of the dorsal, ventral, anterior, posterior axis are determined by sort of the oocytes. You know, it's already specified there. So that information is reta- retaining there. And then when the sperm is fertilizing the egg, forming that zygote, then the zygotic gene is turned on. So this information to, to give where the liver is on the right side, the eyes are on, 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 on the head, uh, you can only get one, two eyes, not three or one. Uh, this informations are due to cell-cell communication. So one of the, the gene I study when I was in grad school is this called cyclop. So cyclop is really important for separation of the eye field. You know, so in the absence of this uh, this 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 gene, actually, we call it the, this neurooctoderm, which is separating the two eye field, is not going to be separated, and the the fish is actually creating one big eye. It's a, it's, it's, it's going to be cyclopic eye rather than huh. having having two eyes. So I think the information with this powerful genes, which are making sure. So what that gene is doing is this mid. Mid, in the mid between the eye, it's telling the cells not to become eye fields. Of course, it is determined by many, many others. For instance, the sonic headshot, which is a huge signaling pathway is involved in that. But those this, this informations are really uh, very cool. I don't want to go more further, but if you look at it, you know, uh, fish, they live in a, in a very deep water. They don't have eye. The eye field is actually there but they don't see. The reason they don't see, or they don't really, not, not only see, but they don't have the eye field is because evolutionary, why do you want to spend time for something you don't need? You know what I mean? So I think these genes are really there to, to, to make sure that the cell-cell communication, cells, they talk to each other to form the basis of these three germ layers. From the three germ layers, then they're going to talk about where these organs form and where they should be going in terms of migratory. So when we think about development, we are talking about cell division, differentiation, but also migration where all these cells, they need to be migrated. All right. So what would you like to focus on? The cell division component or cell-to-cell communication? Or what would you like to speak about <laughs> that you're familiar with most? But both, both are good because I think, you know, one thing I was fascinated about this when I was a grad student are how do this embryo set up? But also... Uh, when when moving on, you know, if you look at it, cancer itself, we think is happening because of one bad cell is happening in that patient. So both embryos start from one cell, and then this cell uh, also in terms of cancer is that mistake happening, either it's mutation or epigenetic change, which is capping the code of life DNA. Uh, that change is giving signal continuously to divide it without stopping, uh, without shutting off. Finally, uh, then the cells divide uncontrollably, and then they start migrating somewhere. Uh, for instance, the colon can go to the liver, and then eventually it kills the very person it births to it. So I think, you know, we can talk about cell-cell signaling. That's what cancer is about, or uh, embryo is about, sure. or we can talk about cell division. Uh, either is fine or both are fine. 
Well, what what does cell to cell signaling look like? Is that accomplished through multiple paths? Like I've I've heard there's membrane yeah. transduction, there's tunneling nanotubes, there's extracellular vesicles. Like what have you observed <laughs> are the predominant ways that cells communicate? Yeah, so so my main area when when I study whether it's embryo or cancer is cell uh, cell signaling. We have this about ninety percent of cells they communicate through this called paracrine signaling, meaning that one cell sends us, is thinking about the cell phone. A cell phone, when we call, you know, to that number out of millions of cells, it's going to go only to that person. You know, that person then going to pick it up, that signal, right? So the same analog in here, some cells are sending signals and the other cells are receiving it. They must have specific receptors on them to receive it, whether to die, you know, by apoptosis, which is uh, programmed cell death, or to move or to divide it. You know what I mean? So whatever signaling coming from neighboring cells are determined or influence the behavior of that neighboring cells. So cell-cell communications are triggers, whether in embryonic development or in cancer cancer development. What aspects of cell-to-cell signaling, again, appear to be important in cancer? Like what... What do you think first creates metastasis? What kind of signaling is going on and where to create that, for instance? So in terms of metastasis, it's, it's very interesting. What we know so far, there are many, many, of course, influence metastasis, but you know, the very basic thing I can say is, so this cell-cell communication is highly governed. You know, if you look at it in embryo, the cells, they divide it. For instance, if they come, uh, you know, in embryos that are called this embryonic stem cells like mesoderm, endoderm, and octoderm. For instance, if you think about octoderm, like the, 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 the octoderm give rise to the brain and to the skin, and then they came from one cell type, but they need to really differentiate it, meaning that signaling between them are communicating, well, I become a neuro, you better be skin. Something like that n- nature is happening in that. So in, in, in cancer cells, if you look at it in terms of metastasis, one of the big factor, uh, for instance, is angiogenesis, which is wiring of blood vessels, for instance. This wiring of blood vessels is normally happening by signaling, by cell-cell signaling. For instance, there is this signaling called VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor. It's a ligand that's going to send. So during injury, for instance, or during embryonic development, you know, angiogenesis must wire to heal a wound or angiogenesis must wire during a menstrual period or something like that. So, but it is highly governed. In cancer cells, that kind of rule is out. So what happened is the cancer cells are, instead of waiting for signal, they are starting producing themselves. So what they are doing is, these cancer cells are originally more from epithelial cell types, like the skin or the gut or anything like that. And then these epithelial cells are sending signal to endothelial cells. Endothelial cells are cells of blood vessels. When they send that signal, the the endothelial cells, they have no idea. They're going to say, aha, we got signaling, then we have to wire that blood vessels. So not all cancers are doing that, you know, wiring angiogenesis. But cancer cells, they do that so that they can feed themselves, they can get rid of some toxic substance from them, 
but also be able to metastasize from one area to another area. So this is just one an example how metastasis can happen by wiring angiogenesis. But in general, a lot of metastasis is happening, not just by this mechanism. You know, what we think happening after tumor development is it must be additional mutation can happen. For instance, if the cells are keep dividing, they're going to say at some point, if for instance, in a colon, the cells are keep dividing, 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 and then they're going to change their behavior from maybe benign tumor to malignant tumor. Once they become the malignant tumor, when the cells are dividing, there is a tendency they're going to make more mutations, more epigenetic changes. These mutations or epigenetic changes could be influenced the behaviors of the cells to break the extracellular matrix, for instance. Breaking the extracellular matrix leads to maybe going from one area to another area. For instance, they're going to be access to the bloodstream. So the cancer cells from colon, they're going to get in, into the bloodstream. They're going to be circulating and they're going to end up into the liver. Once they go to the liver, then they're going to keep dividing there and then they're going to make the liver out of use and that patient is going to die because so, of that complication. So how do you, so I guess we're talking about the epithelial to mesenchymal transition. Is that what yes. you're describing? Mm-hmm. So how do you think that, how do you think that starts? What stressors cause that? Or do you think it's like a random mutation? Like what, what do you think causes it? I, I think so. There are, if you look at it in, in, they did a lot of assay in terms of, you know, epithelial cells, right? And then they see, they see also there are markers for mesenchyme cells, right? So what they found was, you know, there is this transition from epithelial to mesenchyme cells. Because if you think about it, epithelial cells, they are not capable of migrating. They, I mean, they are not capable, yeah, they are not capable of migrating. They are not capable of metastasis, right? But if you look at it, human cancer, about 90% of human cancers are epithelial origin. So in order for these epithelial cells to migrate, they need to change into mesenchyme cells. The mesenchyme cells are the ones they are able to, to, to migrate, right? So what we, to, to answer your question, it could be a random mutation. That random mutation is at some point, these epithelial cells, if, if in order for them to migrate, they need to change or they need to turn it on genes important for mesenchyme cells. The, there are mesenchyme cells genes, they're going to be turned on. Once they turn it on that, then they're going to change from this epithelial to mesenchyme types of cells. But once they change that behavior and they metastasize and go, for instance, from colon to the liver, when they reach at the liver, mesenchyme cells, they are not actively divided. They don't like to divide it. So what happened is that they have to change back to epithelial cells. So we don't really know the mechanism of that. Is it a random mutation happening during that? Or is the cancer cells already figured out to go back again to epithelial cells so that they're going to keep dividing in that liver so that they're going to take over the entire organ? I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. So right now for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text Genius, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text Genius to 818181. 
and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Well, it seems like for different cancers, um, metastatic sites are preferred in certain organs. So it seems like certain cancers have a tropism for, you know, metastasizing in certain spots instead of just randomly. What do you think governs that? Uh, That's a great question. So I think there are some conditions, you know, some kind of hypothesis, you know, why is a specific cancer, you know, when to choose a specific organ? So this is not all, you know, covering all the entire uh, kind of cancer, why they are metastasized, where they go, but there are specific kind of indications, hypotheses. For instance, you know, origin of that cancer. So in embryonic development, the embryo develops into these germ layers called octoderm, mesoderm, and endoderm. And like I said earlier, the octoderm, for instance, give rise to skin and the brain. So somehow cells are remembering that. So one of the hypotheses is maybe the cancer cells, which is originated from skin, are preferably to go to the brain. It's a kind of asking, hey, remember we were together a long time ago, and then please, can I stay here, right? That kind of analog can happen. So cells are remembering where they originated, where they, they come from. The other uh, important thing, aspect, if you look at it, uh, for instance, prostate cancer. Prostate cancers often migrate or metastasize to the bone. And one of the, the study, many studies indicate why does prostate go to the, to, 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 the, to the bone is because they might use similar growth factors. Uh, and then the liver is also a lot of organs, a lot of, I mean, uh, cancers, they go to the liver. One of the idea is maybe the liver has a lot of growth factors. The other important aspect to think about is blood flow. If you think about, you know, the lung, the lung is a site of almost all, you know, metastasis, like, you know, cancers, because every cells, you know, take oxygen in our body. Also due to cellular respiration, all the cells, they need to get rid of CO2, carbon dioxide out. So that means the lung is actually getting all these kinds of things from all the cells. So, you know, cancer cells circulating into the bloodstream has a tendency they can stay in the, in the lung. The other important thing along with that well studied is maybe a kind of liver. If you look at it, colon cancer, usually it goes to the liver. And what the best way to understand this is the food we eat during whatever we put it in our mouths it need to go through the liver first, through this called, you know, hepatic portal vein. It need to pass through that. So if you think about this GI tracts, all colon cancers are, since they are going to pass through that, since foods are going to be passing or processing through that, then there is a tendency, these cancers, they're going to go through that and then they might say, huh, I can stay there. So the blood flow origins of, you know, the embryonic development early on, uh, and then maybe the presence of some specific growth factor may influence where cancer cells they can go. Well, what about uh, some brain cancers that do not seem to metastasize? I think glioblastoma, uh, certain kinds don't, or they don't appear to outside of the brain. So why, why in that case, do you think they don't metastasize to distal organs? Yeah, so, so that's, that's a good question. So why are certain cancers they don't metastasize is, 
I, I mean, blastoma is as deadly as others, you know. I mean, it's really bad cancer to have. But, you know, the, the easy answer I can, I don't really know much about it, but the easy answer maybe uh, I can think about is maybe, you know, uh, I think cancer takes way many years to develop. You know what I mean? So if you look at it, these deadly cancers, however, maybe the patient is of actually could die before it's metastasized because of these complications happening. But metastasis does not just happen overnight. You know, if you look at it, you know, that's what screening and preventations are really important. If you look at it, colon cancer in a normal population, it doesn't come until age 45, 50. The reason is actually your body is trying not to get you cancer, but some mutations might accumulate. So cancer says they don't want to metastasize unless there is additional accumulation of mutations are happening. So I think in this brain cells, this, they don't want to metastasize. Maybe the cancer does not stay for a very long period of time. Eventually, the, can- the patient might die because of that complication. What are some of the big issues that you're researching and trying to answer in regards to cancer? So I do basic cancer research. So uh, when I was at Emory University, uh, we studied this gene called Krupp-like uh, factor 4. It's KLA4. It's a transcription factor. It is usually normally expressed in this differentiated cells. So it is anti-cell division. It's anti-proliferation. So uh, when I, I got hired at Colgate, I need to branch it out myself. So one foundation I did, which is a very unique and important aspect of my research I did when I was at Emory is the study of gene. This gene is usually happening in mice and in a lot of you know, cancer types like colorectal cancer types. My finding in 2009, what we published is actually in fibroblasts, in a normal fibroblast cells. If you take away this gene, they have this genomic instability, DNA damage. Uh, they show aneuploidy, abnormal numbers of chromosomes. They seem as they look like transformers. So it's really bugging me all the time what is this really mechanism? Why is it really happening? Uh, KLA4 is a transcription factor. It's, an, it's not a kinase protein. How is it really regulating DNA repair mechanisms? So when I came here, I tried to look into these processes, cellular processes like RFAG, uh, reactive oxygen species, and so on and so on. So what we found was in the absence of this gene, there are these reactive oxygen species are upregulated. And then this are not upregulated. It, it, there is more, the reactive oxygen species are not, a, they are not genes. So reactive oxygen species is a lot present in the absence of. These reactive oxygen species are normally can damage DNA and then they can cause mutations in the DNA, right? So the question is, how is this reactive oxygen species present when this gene is out? How is it regulated? So what we found is normally these reactive species are produced during cellular respiration, right? These free radicals are coming, but there are antioxidants in our body. There are these antioxidants are they going to scavenge them and then they're going to reduce them or get rid of them. What we found in our study was these antioxidants are downregulated when this gene is absent. So then we kind of looking, what if there, what about you know, we also know that, you know, the 
this called uh, myodefagy or autophagy. Autophagy is a recycling mechanism. Cells are actually... Oh, autophagy or autophagy? Yes, yes. autophagy, yeah. Autophagy is when, you know, cells are stressed out or they are starved or when there is old substances or old molecules like proteins or lipid or uh, kind of organelles, they need to recycle in in timely fashion. So since we are really found these reactive oxygen species are increasing, we were really thinking about, you know, what about the mitochondria? So this is a recycling machinery. So we're thinking about this, this called mitophagy. Mitophagy is a special type of autophagy, which is making the cells, the mitochondria need to be recycled in timely fashion. It need to be uh, degraded in timely fashion. Because the mitochondria, a lot of the cellular respiration, which is cellular respirations are happening in the mitochondria, then we're thinking maybe that could be a problem. So what we found, which is we published in 2020 with 10 undergraduate students are, uh, we found that this mitophagy is also impaired. So when we look at it, why mitophagy is impaired also, we found there are specific genes, we call this BCL, uh, genes, you know, uh, BCL3 genes are absent in the absence of these genes. So by putting together, the antioxidant genes are absent in this gene when the gene is not present, the KLF4 is not present, and the uh, mitophagy uh, genes which are requiring for recycling of mitochondria are absent. When we combine together, this KLF4 is actually very important for regulating mitophagy in the cells. As a result, if there is no KLF4 present, then high levels of reactive oxygen species could lead to DNA damage. That DNA damage could lead to genomic instability. So I don't know, do you think the answer will be found in genes or epigenetic change, or is there some other regulatory (laughs) mechanisms in cells or, you know, communication methods that, I don't know, are beyond this, that could be responsible for a lot of this collectivist behavior? Yeah, that's that's a wonderful question. Uh, well, that's what we are trying to figure it out. So one of one of the question is, you know, when we when you study transcription factors, it's a very huge thing. You know, is it really KLO for directly doing this? Is it really regulating at the at the gene level, binding as a transcription factor, binding to specific promoter of BCL two, uh, BCL three, or to specific promoter of these antioxidant genes? so that it can be turned on to regulate all these cellular processes? Or is it really KLF4 activates other genes? They can do the work. Is it dependent directly or independent directly? Is it epigenetically modified? These genes are epigenetically. Maybe their regulatory sequences are somehow, you know, methylated so that they are, their activity is shutted off, turned off in this, in the absence. So, in the lab, what we are doing right now is we are trying to figure out what is the molecular mechanism, how KLF4 is regulating. Is it as a transcription level, whether it's turned on or turned off this genus, or is it an epigenetic modification happening in this genus when the KLF4 is absent? So we don't know the answer for that. What we know is somehow we have some kind of indication. We did some microarray data, and then we did some kind of you know, transcription assay using RT-PCR. And it seems like in the absence of this gene, their expression is downregulated. 
And then when we put back KLF4 into the cells, actually there is rescue. There is some kind of recovery is happening there. But in order to look closely at the promoter, at the regulatory sequences, we need to do other assays, like they call it chip assays, uh, so that you know it will tell us whether KLF4 is physically turning all these genes or not. So what, what do you think is going to be possible uh, research-wise in the next five years versus, let's say, the next 20, like near-term? Any breakthroughs coming or not yet? On my, on my research or in general in cancer? Oh, on the cancer research, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, I, you know, in terms of cancer research, I hope, uh, you know, we can see, you know, more of this, this, this disease is affecting many, many people in many, many ways. And, you know, it is, I think, to think about uh, prevention. I think we, are, we don't talk much about prevention. Uh, prevention can include screening. Uh, I think prevention could be uh, personalized medicine, I would say, uh, that has its own problem. But I think our lifestyle changes. I think diet could be a big thing. Uh, I think, you know, our lifestyle diet or whether smoking or drinking or maybe exposure to radiation or anything like that. I think those are a, a very important aspect of thinking I'm hoping to see in the next five years. The other important aspect to think about is often we tackle problems from the disease perspective. We're thinking about, well, there is cancer. What is really the cancer doing? But if you look at it actually in our body, the the normal cells are as guilty as the cancer cells. You know, the, the normal cells are helping the cancer cells to divide it. They are helping the cancer cells perhaps to metastasize. So I think I would like to see for researchers to kind of thinking about what kind of target therapy we can think about looking in normal cells, what kind of things we can do to normal cells so that they are not going to make them to divide it, they are not going to make them to metastasize uh, uh, the cells, or maybe targeting this so that they're going to be able to kill them or something like that. So I think targeting therapy is really important in that aspect, I would say. Uh, if you think about a lot of cancer cells are similar, about 20,000 genes in a normal cells, the same in cancer cells. So I'm hoping to see if there is a specific gene or specific pathways in cancer cells exist, you know, so that we can specifically using targeted therapy for that specific cancer to, to do that. So these are very powerful. It's very difficult, but they are very powerful because often chemotherapy radiation is really, really difficult in terms of cancer treatments, but targeted therapy is really a good way. So I'm, I'm looking, seeing the next five, 10 years, I think there's three things I mentioned, uh, hopefully, uh, I mean, they are already start. There are a lot of immunotherapy, for instance, we see, uh, which is really great for, you know, liquid tumor, uh, like, you know, liquid uh, cancers like, you know, leukemia and lymphoma, but they are not great in terms of other solid tumors like colon or, you know, breast cancers. Uh, so, but I think that is particularly how do you going to train your immune cells so that or modify them so that they can tackle or attack uh, can, can, cancer cells. I think this kind of targeted therapy are really critical for uh, cancer prevention, I would say. But it sounds like targeted therapy could be confounded by cell-to-cell communication. It could either support it 
or hinder it. And, you know, I, I don't, it seems like it would be a danger to stop cell to cell communication because probably a whole host of processes may not work. So how do you accomplish targeted therapy? So I think if, if you think about, you know, let's say if there is a patient that is diagnosed with breast cancer, right? So if the patient is diagnosed with breast cancer, often the physicians should think about, you know, how is it caused, right? So that we have two things there. One is, is it happening because of hormones? Because there are specific cancers that are happening by hormone, prostate cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, thyroid cancer, and others, right? So if it happened to be happening by having hormone-dependent cancer, meaning that the estrogen receptor is actually present there, overexpressed a lot there, then they need to figure it out. This is not necessary to do chemotherapy for these patients. I think having to stop estrogen binding to the receptor, the estrogen receptor is the key to go. And then often a lot of patients actually having hormone dependent are really cured as long as they take that tablet, I don't know, once a day or once a week or whatever, they, they are cured as long as there is no mutation in other cells. The other thing to, to think about it is if there is a patient in that breast cancer patient, still it's not hormone. So they ruled out the possibility this cancer is not happening by, by hormone, but it happens by a specific receptor. Let's say there is a receptor called in, you know, epithelial growth factor receptor. Often in breast cancer, for instance, there is this called human, you know, they call it uh, human epithelial growth factor receptor, which is often overexpressed in these breast patients. If they found that, there is a simple assay they can do, and then they can look and then by biopsy. And then if they feel that, that patients, they have that mutation, then they can actually give a specific antibody, an, an, an antibody or a specific drug again to block that communication. You know, there's a ligand, that growth factor to prevent from binding to the receptor. And there are many drugs. Herceptin, I don't know if you heard about that, for instance, is a very common yeah, I've heard drug. About it. Yeah, yeah there's very common drug. They give it to the patients and a lot of patients are fine. The problem with that is assuming that the problem is in the receptor. Cancer cells often, they change. You know, cancer, of, cancer cells often, they develop this drug resistance. What does that mean is, what if the mutation is down? It's not at the receptor, but in the cytoplasm. Some transcription factors or some genes are involved in cell cycle. Then if that mutation is happening, the patient they take Herceptin, for instance, is not going to work. Because Herceptin is responsible only to block the signal in upstream at the beginning. But cancer cells can come with a different mechanism. They're going to say, I'm going to just mutate this. And then in that case, the patient needs to take some radiation or chemotherapy treatment. So I think I believe these targeted therapies are actually powerful because in, in a given cell, there are many, many receptors uh, you know, present there for many, many reasons. But this targeted therapy, you are targeting specific kind of receptors so that actually the side effect is extremely minimum as well. You know, people, patients, they take Herceptin, uh, have, they don't have much side effect as 
people they take, you know, chemotherapy or radiation. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to find out more about your research? Where can they find more of your papers and everything? If they go to colgate.edu slash ihagos, uh, they can find me there. I think Google Scholar is uh, a perfect way to look at uh, for my researches. Uh, there are my publication records uh, or just simply Google Engda Hagos and then they will get some what we do in the lab. Very good. Well, Engda, thank you so much for coming. It's been a very good call. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Richard. Have a great day. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP to get this exclusive podcast discount. Text GENIUS to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.